Veritas. We're off to a smooth start here tonight. Um, I'm kind of sick, so I sound a little bit weird, so I apologize. Please bear with me. If you're here for the first time tonight, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. That's a book in the New Testament written by a guy named Paul. He was one of the apostles. Last week, we heard Ryan Wampler speak about uh, specifically the church, the body of Christ, God's chosen people, and specifically the importance of maintaining a unity, is building one, making sure that that people is united, is on the same team, is building one another up in love. You see, God's people are supposed to be unified. They're supposed to be together, holy, distinct, set apart, easily recognizable by others, so that others see it and they go, huh, I I kind of want to know what more about that. That's what Paul is getting at. Now, tonight, we're, we're in verses 17 to 32, if you have your Bibles. Paul is answering the question, how the heck does that happen? How does the church create unity? How does the church build this togetherness? And the answer is, uh, you don't be a zombie. Now, uh, moment of uh, confession here, I... I very much hesitate to use this illustration. Uh, I know how dorky zombies are. Uh, I know they are not real. They're not real. Um, And, you know, I might have just lost all credibility with some of you, maybe all of you. But here's the deal. Uh, I am a dork as well. Anybody watch the show Walking Dead? Uh, Thank you. Oh, Jesse is jumping up and down. Yes. My people, my dorky people, welcome. Um, So Paul says don't be zombies. But here's the deal. At the risk of it being cliche or not taken seriously, it's tripped up and it works. Because this is what Paul is talking about in these verses. Let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 17. This is what Paul says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see, these these Gentiles, these pagans, these people are far from God. They're zombies. They're they're rotting corpses. They're aimless, detailed explanation out of purpose. And here's the thing. Here's what these verses do. They give us a detailed explanation of how this all starts, of how it happens, how this downward spiraling path of evil begins. It starts in verse 17. It says it starts with a futile mind. This means that the entire foundation of Gentile thought is pointless. It's purposeless. You see, in Greek thought, by and large, they viewed the physical realm, the earthly realm, as detestable as evil, as something to be avoided at all costs. Now that is completely the opposite in Genesis 1 with creating of the material because God is creator. He starts in Genesis 1 with creating all things out of nothing and they are good. Jesus himself became human flesh. You can't get more opposite than these two worldviews. You see, these people have lost touch with reality and they're intentionally intentionally stumbling around in the dark. It's like these people have turned off a light switch and then ripped the entire switch out of the wall so that it can't be turned on. They've intentionally done that. Hence, 
in verse 18, it says these Gentiles have a darkened understanding. You see, because the lights are off and they've ripped the, the switch out of the wall, they can't understand that gospel. They can't see Jesus. They can't see his glory. They can't see the beauty of it. That, that, that word in the Greek, it stresses the fact that this is an ongoing state. That would be like, not to be insensitive, but if I asked someone who couldn't see, can you tell me if the light turns green? They just, they just can't do it. In the same way, these Gentiles, these zombies, they cannot understand the truths of the gospel. And because of this darkened understanding, they have hard hearts. This is the end of verse 18. They have a stubborn unwillingness to learn. They're donkeys. They're donkeys. They've intentionally closed their minds. They're blamed for it. You know, these people, they might believe God exists, but they just shrug their shoulders at it. They say he doesn't matter. They might see a faithful Christian or a group of Christians and think, you're a God freak. What is wrong with you? Kind of in a condescending, sneering way. That's kind of the embodiment and the ethos of these people. And here's the deal. Futile minds, darkened hearts, sorry, darkened understanding, hardened hearts. These inner dynamics, they cannot remain inside. They claw their way out into behavior. That's what verse 19 says. Up to sensuality. These zombies, they have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. These are not good people. These are not people who were born neutral or born good and then somehow corrupted. These are guilty people willingly engaging in callous behavior. The guy behind me, I'm going to spell his name, Wim Hof, W-I-M space H-O-F, Wim Hof. He's hanging out in an ice bath. He's able somehow to regulate his body temperature in an amazing way. This guy holds the world record for the longest ice bath. Hour and he's also that's just dumb, but it's kind of cool. Hour and fifty-two minutes. He's also run a marathon in the Arctic Circle in Finland, just in shorts. No shirt, just shorts. I wouldn't even do that now, let alone the Arctic, okay? He is completely calloused. Cold temperature, completely calloused. You can't feel it. But here's the deal. Spiritually speaking, if we become calloused, that is a very dangerous thing. God created us with soft minds and soft hearts so that when we don't live out the way we're supposed to, it's a little bit, but that lets us of his commandments. It cuts us. That's a good thing. Yes, it hurts a little bit, but that lets us know, okay, this is the good life, following God's law, and when we go outside of that, that's bad. Don't do it. But if we become calloused, we no longer feel those cuts, and they start to become hardened. And when that happens, we lose all self-control. More and more behavior begins to be normal, and it just gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. You see, these zombies Paul is describing, they've lost the capacity to feel. They can't feel shame. They can't be embarrassed. They don't feel guilty because they are engaging in more and more. If you think of forms of immorality. Now, if you think I'm being a little overdramatic, if you think I'm 
speaking in hyperbole, just to kind of make a point. Let me ask you this question. Why would Paul speak this way? The apostle is actually writing to a group of Christians. I think we're a group of Christians. Why would he say this to the church? Well, he's writing because there's people in this church, in this community, who are living like zombies. He's looking around and he knows in this city of Ephesus where they're living that there are people living like zombies. It's being seen in the church, this futile mind, this darkened understanding, this hardening of heart, this calloused behavior. And unfortunately for us today, it's no different. It's no different. Now here's why I, I hesitated a little bit to use the zombie illustrations. Because you're zombies. Okay, they're walking around. What do you do when the zombie apocalypse hits? I'm going to my in-laws. We've got a lake. You know, all those things. We kind of joke. But here's the deal. There are zombies walking around campus today. They are spiritually dead. It's a very sad thing. It's a very serious thing. You know, there are people on campus right now having sex with multiple, multiple partners. 19.7. According to the American Sexual Health Association, there are 19.7 million STDs contracted every year. One in two people will get an STD by the age of 25. One in two people. There are people on this campus right now abusing drugs. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, daily marijuana use among college students has tripled in the last 20 years. It is now more common to smoke marijuana on a day-to-day basis than it is to smoke cigarettes. It's the highest it's been since 1980 with a heroin addiction. Not only marijuana, heroin use is on the rise. Maybe some of you know someone with a heroin addiction. Between 2007 and 2011, heroin usage went up by 75%. The DEA has increased the amount of heroin they seized by 50%. It's up to 2,000 pounds a year now. And the most common thing they're seeing is this is, this is being done in the suburbs. This is in the, with, in the good part of town, so to speak. There's people on this campus indulging pornography. Between 1998 and 2007, now this is a little dated, but it's still shocking nonetheless, pornography sites jumped 18 porn. As of 2004, now again, this is 12 years ago, porn sites were visited three times more than Google, Yahoo, and MSN combined. And this is not just a guy problem. The fastest growing demographic of pornography users are girls from the ages of 13 to 17 guy and a girl problem. This is a people problem. There are people on this campus boasting about underage drinking. There's some people who make a living selling fake IDs to minors. Now, let me say this. I know this is cliche. I know this is talked about all the time, but here's the deal. I am not doing you a problem. We, as a staff of Veritas, are not doing anyone of a favor if we don't talk about this because it's a problem. We care too much about you, too much about people, too much about this campus not to address it, not to speak to it because it's a problem. There are zombies walking around campus right now. I mean, is that you? I don't know. How many of us in here are zombies? I don't know. Only you do. But here's what I do know. 
if you're here tonight and you'd say you're a Christian, you are believing in Jesus, not perfectly, but 51%, more than not, trying to, fighting to, and guess what? The verses we true of you, you, let me say that again. Those verses that we read are not true of you. You are not a zombie. Instead, God tells us that we're among the living. If we're part of his people, if we're believing in Jesus, we are among the living. Pick it up in chapter 4, verse 20. Paul says, but that, that is not the way that you look, excuse me, that you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and that you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. You learned and you were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. You used to be a zombie, the likeness of God and true deceitful desires. But now to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Remember, what's it like to build up the body? How do we remain unified as a people? What's it look like to be counted among the living? These verses tell us two things. Number one, it means means that we remember that we are a people who have already learned about Jesus. We've already learned about Jesus. Look at verse 20 again. Paul says, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him. The common, they, past tense, they're all in the past. This has already happened. They and you and me, we don't need any new info. They've heard about the fact that the historical person of Jesus lived in the first century, actually died, was buried for three days, rose from the grave, appeared not only to his disciples, but to 500 other people, eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts. Go read 1 Corinthians 15. 500 people, and then he rose. You see, Paul, he doesn't chastise this community for living like zombies and treating them as if they're zombies. What he's doing is he's hell. He's pouring a bucket of ice water on him. He's slapping him across the face. He's saying, wake up. Wake up. This is not you because you remember. Remember what happened. Some of, some of you tonight might be wondering, Are you a zombie? Are you engaging in this type of behavior? Is this true of you? You might be. If you've never really genuinely put your faith in Jesus, if you've been going to church most of your life and maybe you've been going because it was a social club or you had to make a lot of friends or you did because your parents told you, but maybe you've never really grasped it and thought in a church. I don't even know what I'm doing. Or maybe you're here tonight and you know for sure, yeah, that's me. I've never been in a church. I don't even know what I'm doing here. If that's you, just know that there's hope. If you're a zombie, there's hope because God is merciful. He's gracious. He's loving. He's wanting you. He's got a welcome invitation. His door is open. He's saying, come, let me change you. Let me give you life. But others of us aren't zombies. You know, not 100%, but 99.9% that you believe in Jesus. You're fighting to believe God's promises. There's good, healthy signs. But you know, sometimes you're not sure. You're a bit inwardly named. Maybe you're caught in some sort of patterns, chronic, not maybe outwardly, but inwardly. And you just feel so guilty. 
You go back and forth so often. You have a sensitive conscience. Here's the deal. You need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. The fact that we've heard about Jesus. We've learned about him. We've been taught who he is. There's nothing you and I need to do because we are valued and accepted by God. Second way to be counted among the living, according to these verses, means that we remember what has been done for us. Verse 22, Paul says, to put off your on, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now, if I'm in the first century, and I'm a Gentile, I'm a Greek, and I hear this language of putting on and putting off, what comes to mind is an initiation rite into a mystery religion, kind of mysterious, kind of a secret club. And what they would do in these rites is they would, uh, to symbolize things, they would take off this old robe and they'd put on a new one. And that would symbolize they're a new person. They now have access to new levels of the divine and the deity. He's telling this language, he knows that it will strike a chord with them. He's telling this group of people, these Christians, that they have become a completely new person. They're counted among the living. So putting off, putting on. Here's what this does not mean. And this is important. I need to hear this. It does not mean that if we're a Christian, if they were part of God's people, we keep changing clothes. So if anybody went to the Crossing College Conference, they saw uh, Nate McHenry, God bless him, he had that huge sumo suit on. And then Travis Roberts got to put one on himself and they ran around the gym. I tell you what, it was a pain in the butt to get those suits on. And it was a pain in the butt to take them off as well. Our old self, when we see off and putting on, does not mean we're in the constant process of taking off our old self when we sin and putting our new self when we kind of come to our senses. The cycle is not, I just, I just messed around with my boyfriend. I, I just, I, I need to put my, my new self back on. I took my old self off. I need to put my new self back on. No, that's not it. That's not it. Here's what it does mean. It means that we're Superman. It means that we're Superman. You know Superman. Uh, he's the only superhero that kind of normally wears something other than his uniform. But trouble comes. What does he do? Pulls the shirt back, Cam Newton style. It's always on. Maybe Cam Newton borrows from Superman. He's got the uniform on underneath. It's always on. It never comes off. It's who he really is. It's who he really is. You see, when Jesus died and when he rose, he gave us a new set of clothes. He gave us a new uniform. It's pristine. It's perfect. It's clean. It's unstained. And here's the deal. Jesus gets what he wants. Once we put that uniform on, once we believe in Jesus, it's good. God is stubborn. We should praise the Lord every day that he is more stubborn than you and I. He's more stubborn than our sin. Because he, now we're counted. That uniform does not come off. But because of that, now we're counted among the living. One author, um, scholar, put it this way. He said, this language in these verses of putting off and putting on means that Christians today are to continue to live out the implications of their mighty break with the past. Simply put, we're not zombies. We're among the living. 
We've learned Christ. We've been taught in him. And those new clothes that we've been given declare loud and clear to the watching world, to the skeptics, to Satan, and to demons, no. Of God. I was. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I was meant for God. I live in and for God's kingdom. No matter what you say, no matter what you tell me, there's nothing that can change who I am. Not because of anything I do, but because of what Jesus has done. We've got a new uniform. We are among the living. So the last question we got to ask is what does this actually look like? What does it look like to count ourselves uh, among the living? Well, in these verses from 25 to 32, there are seven different ways that sort of coach us about how to do this. We're going to focus, and it's in verse 28. Therefore, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We're going to discuss who the thief is, what they should do instead, and why they should do it. Who's the thief? Well, a thief, according to the verse, is someone who steals. Somebody who takes something in secret, takes something without permission. Now, this isn't anything new. Paul is reaffirming the eighth command a little bit. The Old Testament, you shall not steal. Let's put it in context a little bit. Paul really is speaking to day laborers, essentially construction workers. Their work is seasonal. Maybe they get a job for a day. Maybe they get a job for a week. Maybe they get a job for a couple months. But guess what? When they're out of season, good luck. They're on their own to provide for themselves shelter, food, not only them, but their families. And this is the ancient world. There's no welfare system. There's no Medicaid. There's no unemployment benefits. You see, God knows the plight of these people in the first century better than we ever could. Well, he does not do. He doesn't lower the standard. He doesn't say, well, man, I I didn't think about it. Wow, your life is pretty rough. Okay, go ahead. No, he upholds it. This is why Jesus came. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to uphold it. I'm not going to abolish a jot or a tittle of the law. Everything's going to be maintained. If God calls those people not to steal, how much more does he call us? Many of us are citizens of the most wealthy, rich culture in human history. How much more does he call us not to steal? Who are these people who pirate music? Lots of different ways that we're thieves today. People who pirate music. People who cheat in school. People who literally steal things. People who lie on resumes. People who steal others' dignity by assassinating their character. Speaking bad about them on social media. Not just individuals, but groups of people bringing up something about someone during the prayer request time at your small group, cutting them down, make yourself feel a little bit better, that's stealing. What should the thief do instead? Let the thief labor. Second part of verse 28. Let the thief labor. 
doing honest work with their own hands. You see, that term, labor, it has in mind work hard to the point of exhaustion. Toil until you are worn out, until you sleep really well. Now, that doesn't just refer to manual labor. It for sure does. If you've ever had summer jobs where you work in construction or something, you know. But it means whatever you do, when you study, if you work with kids, if you work in a nursing home, whatever you do, do it with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Pour your and can look at yourself in the mirror into it and do so in an honest and in a truthful way. Do it in a way that you can look at yourself in the mirror and be okay. More importantly, do it so that you could look Jesus in the face one day and say, yeah, I gave everything. I was honest about it. So for us today, this means that we should pay for our music. It means that we should, maybe that means we have to work another couple hours to pay for it. Maybe it needs to be rearrange how we spend our money. It's worth it. It's worth it. It means we study with integrity. We say no to those answer keys that are on file in our fraternities and sororities. Now, that means we learn the material on our own. Now, it's worth it here. That means you might have to study for an extra four or five hours. Yeah, it's worth it. It means we be honest about what's on that resume. You know, if you want a better resume and you have time, start figuring out honest, good ways to fill it. If it's not realistic for you to do that right now, maybe that means you just be okay with what's there. Maybe that means you don't get the best job, but you know what? What's going to be true of you is in Psalm 37. Verse 16 says this, Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. You see, in the end, power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. You see, in the end, those who cheat and lie and steal their way to the top, however you want to define that, they're going to get what's coming to them. Whether it's next year, whether it's in 10 years, whether it's in 50 years, they're going to get what's coming to them. God knows. But for those who are honest, for those who can sleep well at night, we're being upheld by the Lord even now. He knows what we need because we are among the living. We're his sons and his daughters living in and for his kingdom. This is how the body is built up in love. Uncomfortable here. We uphold the dignity of others. I'm going to make Kyle and Patrick uncomfortable here. They're better preachers than I am and they're smarter than I am. It's true. And I can say that with confidence. I don't need be insecure about that. I don't need to talk to others about their faults or what I wish they would have done in this sermon or talk or how they would have led that meeting differently. I can rejoice in their gifts and their talents. One, I'm benefiting from them. I can be thankful for the ways they serve others. Here's why I can do that. I'm valued by Jesus. My dignity is intact regardless of the success of a peer or a friend or a neighbor or someone even below. Because we bring value. Someone younger than me doing better. I can take that. We can take that. Because we bring value by somebody else. Why should we work hard? Why should the thief work hard? Last thing. Last part of 28 says, Thief should work hard so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Anybody in need just means those who are lacking. 
those who are facing difficulties, those who are going through a hard time. Now catch this. When you work hard, the assumption is you're going to get something from it. You're going to get so much from it, you don't have a lot compared to give back to someone else. Maybe not a lot. I know you're all in college. You don't have a lot comparatively. That's fine. But you got something. And God intends for us to give back, to share with those in need. You see, this is amazing. It tells us so much about God. God's not only concerned about our relationship with him as an individual of living rightly. That's for sure true. But guess what? He uses our actions, our behaviors, our hard work, and our integrity, and our sharing to bless others, to give to those who are in need, who don't have. That's the way it works in his kingdom. It's amazing. It's not an either or. Does he care about the group or the individual? It's both. It's both. He has a deeper music, what we're doing for our hard work. You see, when we pay for music, what we're doing is we are giving back to that band who had to rent the space, who had to produce the album, who needs to be compensated for their talents. When we study with integrity, the people we will serve in vocations and disciplines we are studying 20, 30 years down the road, maybe sooner, they're going to benefit. So if you're a pre-med major and you really learn human anatomy, you really learn it and you know it like the back of your hand, the cancer patient that you operate on in 20 years is going to thank you. You're going to make their life better. If you're an accounting major, if you learn the ins and outs of the IRS, please, tax returns. For me, you're going to help a family get more back on their tax returns. And they might really need that money. We could go, we could go on and on about this. I could be up here for hours. Whatever your major is, whatever your discipline is, do it well. Do it with integrity so that when you learn it, you're going to serve people down the road. Be counted among the living. Live as those who have life. Stop stealing and start working. I'll close with this. So the book of Ephesians is written about 62, not 1962, but literally 62 Christians. Conservative scholars estimate around the time there are about 1,000 Christians mainly living in Jerusalem and modern-day Israel, but some communities scattered around the Mediterranean, 1,000 Christians. You know kind of what the general consensus is of how many Christians there are today? 2.2 billion. That's conservative. 2.2 billion Christians. That's almost a 2 million percent increase. I had to go on Google and do some sort of calculator. It just blew my mind. 2 million percent increase. Now, how does that happen? How the heck does that happen? A lot of things. These Christians in Ephesus. Here's what it is. Back in 62, these Christians in Ephesus, you know what they did? They got together in somebody's house. They grabbed dinner together. They sat down and they listened to someone read some words. That's all they did. What's so great about that? Well, it had to do with who was speaking. God was speaking to them. His words transformed their mind. It transformed their heart. It transformed their hands. God got a hold of them. And when they heard, they didn't know it then, but when they heard chapter 4, 17 through 32, they remembered that they weren't zombies, even though they sometimes acted like it. With integrity, they counted themselves among the living. They worked hard. 
They did it honestly, with integrity. They shared with others. Now, if God can do that with a small, small group in Ephesus, the ancient equivalent of Las Vegas, no doubt, and eventually, through a slow, a messy, an imperfect process, get it to 2.2 billion people, what could he do with us in this room? What could he do? How might God use us in the city, on campus, in your classes, on your dorm floors, in your sorority, and your God do? I have your business fraternities, your service organizations, your jobs, your relationships. What could God do? I have no idea. The possibilities are endless. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. God has structured his kingdom, this area, this arena that we're living in now, so that our actions today, right now, good or bad, they're going to have an effect on tomorrow. And they're going to have an effect in the next month, in the next year, and on into eternity, long after we're gone. They're going to have an effect. You see, God wants his people to make life better for other people and to show others who he is through his actions. Not just for a semester, not just to the end of the year, not just till you're until you're done having kids, not when you retire, until you die or until Jesus comes back. Because of what Jesus has done and through his strength, here's what we need to do together. We need to put off our old self. We need to put on the new one. As the worship team comes up, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I I feel the struggle in my heart. I feel it in my bones, this temptation to live as a zombie, to live as somebody who's dead, to wrestle with sin. I might be that way again and again and again and again. You know, it might be that way to some degree or another for the rest of our lives. Maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. We're all incomplete works in progress, and yet... You count us among the living. Because of Jesus, we have new robes, new clothes, new garments that are pristine, perfect. And so we're free. There's hope. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to steal. There's a way that we've been stealing and haven't admitted it. I just pray that there is hope in Jesus. Confess it to you as we confess it to others. Remind us that there is hope in Jesus. And through our actions, through the way that we live, would you make life better for others? Would you bless others? We give it up to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.